Good morning. My name is Kent Lotus. I'll be reading the scripture for this morning. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You can follow along in your own Bible, hard copy or otherwise, or you can follow along on the screen. I'll be reading from the New International Version, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kent. And thank you, Ryan, for sharing that song from your heart. Good morning. My name's Christine, and today is my last day as your pastor for children's ministry and enfolding ministries. We've been spending a long time in the book of Romans. Those of you who've been here, you know that. And it had been my hope today to provide a little respite and pick something from the Old Testament for a change. But as I began preparing, I kept being drawn back to 1 Peter. That's another New Testament letter, very similar to Romans, just like what you've been studying. But there is one difference. Romans was written by Paul. Peter was written by Peter. And Peter is a fascinating person. He's one of my most favorite characters in the Bible. Peter addresses this letter to Christians who are scattered throughout modern-day Turkey, people who are facing opposition under Roman rule, and his message is basically one of encouragement and of exhortation. And what's really interesting about this is that Peter himself, he doesn't have such a great track record of being a person who stays faithful in the midst of adversity. Peter, especially when he was younger, not much of a thinker. He's a man of action. Sometimes this worked in his favor. For instance, there was a time when Jesus came walking to him on the lake, and he calls out to him, and he says, Peter, get out of the boat. Step out. And Peter gets to walk on water because he's that kind of guy. He's impulsive, and he just does what Peter says, or what Jesus says without thinking. But there are other times when his passion and his impulse gets him in trouble. And he really just ends up playing the fool. The cool thing, though, is that there is much written about Peter in the scriptures. And as we read, we get to see him mature. If you read about Peter in the Gospels, when he's young and he's first starting to hang out with Jesus, you get a picture of him. And then when you read about him in Acts, after Jesus had died and rose again and went back into heaven and the church is starting to grow, you get a different picture of Peter. And then when you look at this letter written later in his life, there's some maturity that comes out. There's definitely some obvious growth as you track Peter throughout his life. Now, what we get when we look at the letter of 1 Peter is that the person of Peter no longer seems to be afraid of other people and what they think and what they will do. And this is very different than the younger Peter we knew in the Gospels. 
The younger Peter is the guy that we read about during Easter time. He's the one who, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus, he was getting like, hey, you can't mess with us, and he cut off the soldier's ear right away. Remember, that was, that was Peter. And yet, the Peter of First Peter says, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. Peter was also the one, when Jesus was headed for trial, got spooked. He didn't want anyone to know that he had actually been friends with Jesus, even though he had promised to stick with him in the end. He goes, Jesus, I'm willing to die with you. That's what he said the night before Jesus was arrested. But once Jesus was in the hands of the officials, some girl looks at him and says, hey, you, you were with him. I saw you. "Uh Uh-uh, not me. And he denies that he knew Jesus. And yet here in 1 Peter, he says, Don't fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Later he says, Dear friends, don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as if something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. He says, Rejoice, inasmuch as now you're participating in the sufferings of Christ. Basically, if you take this letter and you look at it in its entirety, its message could be summed up like this. You belong to God. So hold fast. Be faithful. Remain hopeful. Besides, the end is near. This isn't going to last forever. And when it does end, you'll be rewarded. So be tough. He concludes the letter by saying, The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, he will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. And when you read that and you think about who Peter is and what he's been through, you know that Peter writes from personal experience. I mean, think about how the guy must have felt. How awful it must have been to realize that he had abandoned Jesus in his hour of need, especially after boasting that he would never abandon him. And then think about how he must have felt when after Jesus rose from the dead, he made a point of seeking Peter out and assuring him he had not been disqualified as one of God's own. Jesus called Peter back into ministry and instructed him to love and to lead others. From that point on in Scripture, we begin to see a shift in Peter. It's not to say that he arrived. There's definitely some not-so-stellar moments that are to come. There's that point where he was eating with Gentiles, saw the Jews looking at him, didn't want them to think badly of him because he was associating with them, so he distanced himself from them. Or the time that he got into an argument with Paul that was so uh, intense that they ended up parting ways. So there were still some drawbacks for Peter, but ultimately what we see from this letter is that eventually he gets to a place in life where he's not so rattled by his circumstances as he once was, that he's not so... uh, imprisoned by the perspectives of the people around him, but rather he's rooted in a very firm understanding that he's loved by God and that this present suffering will be replaced with a future glory and that his calling is to live a holy life by respecting people, loving them, and blessing them, whether they deserve it or not. I want to get to this place that Peter gets to. 
I want to have the kind of faith that Peter has and the kind of maturity that he displays. I want to be that confident to know that I am a person who is a person in Christ. I want to be able to withstand the pressure of society and all the people in my life and what they think. I want to be able to withstand all the pressure in my own head, the voices that speak to me from within my own mind. Many of you know that before coming to Evergreen, I worked as a pastor at another church. It was a job I loved in a congregation that I adored. But like the Apostle Peter, I have a tendency to speak my mind a lot, (laughs) often speaking before thinking. And because of this, at least in part, I think, I was terminated and I lost my job. And it was humiliating and utterly devastating. And it's been years and I'm still healing and recovering from that event. And so I want to say, before we get too far here, thank you. Thank you for receiving me so graciously here. Thank you for the support and the encouragement that you have demonstrated to me. It's really been um, a wonderful opportunity to work and to worship among all of you. And it was hard when it became very clear to me that I am not the person to lead the children's ministry into the future. (laughs) It is a very critical and important part of this church ministry, and you need somebody with better expertise and more passion in that area than me. So... Over the past few months, I've been wrapping things up and and wondering, well, what's next, God? I love being a pastor, but we're fully staffed here with adult pastors. And I would love to look for another pastoral position. But my family and I, we've grown to love all of you, and we really don't care to leave. And so that's left me in the position of looking for jobs outside of the church context. And mostly what I have discovered so far from the employers that I have inquired with is that I don't have enough of the right kind of experience to get the kinds of jobs that at least seem interesting to me at the moment. And I have to admit that it's left me more than a little bit depressed and discouraged. And I realize this is nothing compared to what the recipients of Peter's letter are facing. I'm not being persecuted for being a Christian, although I do think a lot of them pass me up because they see that my work experience is just as a pastor and they don't get that. (laughs) But I'm not suffering in the way that these people, the recipients of this letter, are suffering. But I am a person who has very much recently needed to be reminded that I am a person of value and of purpose. It's been really difficult I've spent a lot of time looking at other people my age and a lot of people younger than me who are thriving in their careers. And while they're doing it, they're doing it with clean houses. And while they're raising obedient children, and they do it while staying fit and looking good, it's absolutely depressing. I hate all of you. And of course I know that my worth does not come from what I do. That's Christianity 101. I'm a pastor. I know that. 
Jesus loves you, Jesus loves me, no matter what. But it doesn't make it any easier. I wish that I would allow God's love to penetrate inside of me and transform me from within. I know it has the power to do so if I would let it. In fact, there's a story that illustrates this point, and I want to share it with you now. Long ago, in a place called Nurabandi, young men would bargain with girls' fathers for their hand in marriage. A typical dowry was paid in the form of cows. Three cows would fetch a decent wife. Four or five cows? Pretty incredible, beautiful wife. Johnny Lingo, the brightest, strongest, and most handsome man in the village, loved a woman named Sarita. Sarita, though, was shy and not very attractive. In fact, some say it would be generous just to call her plain. She was also older than most girls of marrying age. Now, the villagers, they loved to gossip about the bargaining price of a girl. Some said, well, Johnny, he might offer two cows. Others said, you know, Sarita's father's lucky to get one. No one else wants her. When Johnny went to meet with Sarita's father, do you know what he offered? Eight cows. Everyone was astonished. That was the highest price ever paid for a bride in their village. Time passed. And Sarita changed. Her eyes began to dazzle, and she moved and spoke with striking grace and poise. People who came to the village and had never seen Sarita before remarked at her astounding beauty. Much later, someone asked Johnny, Why did you pay such a high price for her? Why did you offer eight cows when you certainly could have gotten her for less? And Johnny answered, Think about how it must make a girl feel to know that her husband paid so little for her. It must be insulting to know he places such little value on her worth. Think about how she must feel when the other women boast about the high prices their husbands paid for them. I wouldn't let that happen to my Sarita. He continued, the most important thing that changes a woman is how she thinks about herself. Sarita believed she was worth nothing, but now she knows she is worth more than any other woman in the village. I loved Sarita, and I wanted to marry her. But, he concluded with a sly smile across his face, I also wanted an eight-cow wife. Now consider these words from 1 Peter 1, 18. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. According to Peter, God purchased you not with one cow, Not with two, not with eight, not even ten. He paid more than a few pieces of silver or a handful of gold. God purchased you with his very life. He bought you with his blood, 
Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to earth, lived a sinless life, and died a horrible and unjust death. And he did this for you, and he did this for me. He did this for us, his church. And you know what the Bible calls his church? His bride. We're Jesus' trophy wife. And so I want to ask you, bride of Christ, do you know that you're highly valued? Do you know what you're worth? Do you know what was paid for you? Do you have any idea how much you're loved? Do you live in such a way that reflects the price that was paid for you? Or do you live like a one-cow bride? I would argue that most of our troubles stem from the fact that we do not truly believe that we are holy and unconditionally loved. At least we don't live like we believe it. I think this was part of Peter's problem early on. He felt compelled to constantly prove to Jesus his devotion. And that's why every chance he got, he was reminding Jesus, hey, remember, I left my fishing industry. I left my family for you. Remember, I was here first. I was doing this. Oh, you know, you, Elijah, you guys want to hang out here. Let me do something for you. Let me build something for you. Oh, you know what? You don't have to wash me. I'm good. You know, look, Lord, you can count on me. I'm with you. I love you. I'm devoted to you. A lot of us, are a lot like Peter. We spend a lot of time striving to show our affection to God, proving ourselves worthy of his love. There's some of us, we think, you know, if we attend church regularly, if we read our Bibles, if we pray, if we give, that will earn us favor with God. Most people, even non-Christians, believe, hey, you know what? Really, ultimately, what it's all about is being a good person. As long as I work hard, I try my best, I don't hurt anybody, I'm good. But when we think that God's love is earned, then we have to constantly worry about whether we're doing enough. And then the way that we tend to gauge whether we're doing enough is to look at our circumstances. And so if things are going well, we think, well, God must be pleased with us. But if we start to struggle and things aren't going so well, we start to wonder if we're losing favor with God. Is he out to punish me? Maybe he's trying to teach me a lesson or discipline me or set me in my place. We start to think that he would love us more if we prayed more, served more, tithed more, forgave more. And we start to believe that the reason we have struggles is not so much because we live in a fallen world, but because we've disappointed him with our shortcomings, our lack of discipline, our falling back into sinful patterns, our selfishness, our cursing, our fits of anger, our inability to forgive. These are the thoughts that I have had to fight off recently. It's easy to think that I don't have a job that I love because he's trying to teach me a lesson. Or that I've been unhappy lately because this is the consequence of not having the right spiritual attitude. It's like I've forgotten that I've never had it together. <laughs> that all along, Jesus has loved me in my sinfulness just because he's a loving and gracious God, not because I deserve it. 
And instead of resting in the knowledge of God's love and grace, we can so quickly become consumed with our inabilities. And when that happens, when we begin to consider ourselves as unworthy and unlovable, then we begin to look and act that way too. In essence, we see ourselves as ugly, unwanted, one-cow brides, and that's what we become. But the message of 1 Peter says otherwise. And so it's important for us to look at this text and to remember who we really are. As Kent read for us, it says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You are a chosen people. What does it mean to be chosen? It indicates that there's desire. Doesn't it feel good? God desires you. He picked you. He wants you to be part of his family. That should make you feel special. It's like you're the first-round draft pick or the Academy Award winner for Best Director. You have been chosen. There were options. He didn't have to choose you, but he did. And I know that for some people, those altruistic, compassionate ones among you, you instantly think, well, yeah, it's great to be chosen, but then that means there are people who aren't chosen. What about them? Well, guess what? Peter says in his second letter, the Lord is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. God has chosen everyone to be obedient to him. People who are not included in the people of God aren't included because of God's choice. They're not included because of their own choice. They don't want to be part of it. Paul says in 2 Thessalonians 2.10, those who perish, perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. It's not God's doing. God chooses all of us to be obedient to Christ. God chooses all of us to be one of his. And our being chosen doesn't mean that some weren't chosen. And our being chosen or others being chosen doesn't diminish the fact that we're chosen. The point is that he chose us and he didn't have to. And if we're able to receive this gift of God's favor... We're not only a part of his chosen people, but then we're also called to be part of a royal priesthood. Now, it used to be that the only people who could be priests were the descendants of Levi, Abraham's great-grandson. They were the only people who had permission to directly access God. Access God. But Jesus cleared the way, and now he says, we are all priests. We all have that privilege. We can all enter directly into God's presence. And we can bring others along, and we can lift them up and intercede on behalf of others. We now get to play the role of intermediary for those who don't know him. That's what it means to be a part of his priesthood. What this means is that you have been chosen, and you have been chosen with purpose. God has given each one of us a special job to do. He has equipped each and every one of us with special passions and gifts unique for building up his kingdom. 
And his desire for us, his holy people, is to serve one another, teach one another, admonish one another, encourage one another. When I was ordained as a pastor, my sister wanted to buy me a gift. And she had no idea what the appropriate thing to buy someone who's getting ordained is. So she went to her church and she asked her pastor, what should I buy my sister who is being ordained? And her pastor said, buy her a stole. And when I got this, I said, thank you, but I didn't come from a church tradition where we wore stoles. We weren't that formal, and so it sat sitting in a box for a long time. Until a few summers ago, a friend of mine called and said that his neighbor had passed away. And the daughters of this woman wanted to have a service for her. They themselves were not Christians, but they knew that she would have wanted a Christian service. So did he know a pastor that could come and and perform the memorial? And so he called me, and I met with them, and I went to their home, and we were setting up the, the details and the arrangements, and they looked at me and they said, so now, how will people know that you're the pastor? (laughs) and I guess it's because I don't look like the typical person who would be a pastor. And so I said, ah, well, I have this stole. I don't have a robe, but if, you know, I could wear it with my dress. And, and you know, I did. It was the first time I ever wore it. And it was amazing. I did sort of feel the weight of the responsibility and the privilege And it did sort of command a certain degree of respect. People kind of look at it like, you know, men who wear a collar. I wish that I could come and lay this upon each one of you so that you might feel that tangible weight and know that you too have been chosen, that you too have been anointed, that you too have this privilege of ministering to others. We've been called We've been chosen to be a part of this priesthood, and we are also a holy nation. Imagine what this meant to the people who were scattered about suffering under Roman rule to be, hurt, to be told they were, they were a nation unto themselves, that they were the people of God. This gave to them a sense of belonging so that although they were scattered throughout these various regions, living, as Peter says, as foreigners and exiles, they have a heavenly homeland. They have a wise and loving king. They have fellow citizens and therefore did not need to feel like they were alone. This is a significant thing. Perhaps you have never had this experience of not having a country. I told you I was a lot like Peter, quite foolish in my younger years. I studied Spanish in college and thought, I need to go abroad But I was too chicken to go for a year and move and give up my car and my job and whatnot. So instead, I tore off one of those little phone number tabs at the bottom of a flyer in the bathroom. said, go study in Mexico this summer. And I called this non-reputable company and gave them my money, and they sent me a ticket to go to Mexico. Not much instruction. I had been to Mexico several times. I had crossed in Tijuana and Mexicali, and no one had ever asked me for a passport before, so I didn't have one. And I arrived in Mexico City and had to go through customs, and they said, may we see your passport? And I said, I don't have a passport. You don't have a passport? Do you have any other proof of citizenship? 
Um, I have a driver's license, <laughs> an ID. Nothing showed that I was a US citizen. They call on these, you know, little walkie-talkie things, and these guarded men came and escorted me away and put me on the next plane back to Los Angeles. And I sat there terrified. I just, just think about this. I went from Los Angeles to Mexico, had this experience, got put right back on a plane, sent back to Los Angeles. I was waiting there, and this guy came and he said, I understand you had some trouble, you know, um, stand in this line, I'll be right back. I stood in the line, he didn't come back. My turn came up, I went to the window, they said, we need to see your passport. I said, I don't have a passport, that's why I'm here. Well, we can't let you in without a passport. And I thought, no, wait a minute. Are you going to send me back to Mexico City? What in the world? And so I basically was freaking out. I had no country. It's very alarming. You don't want to be stuck there. You're a part of a holy nation. And you haven't been chosen to be part of some meaningless group, but you've been chosen to be part of a special community with a divine purpose. You have been chosen to represent a people group that is to have a distinct lifestyle that sets us apart from people who do not have hope. Our lives have meaning. God has formed us into a people to call out his praises and shine like light in the darkness. Now here's the tough thing. Peter says we are also God's special possession. Ugh, that sounds awful. That does not sound like chosen or priest or belonging to a nation. Who wants to be someone else's property? I don't want to belong to anybody. My kids always say, you don't own me, right? That's, that's like, we, that's, we cling to that, our individualism, right? In fact, I debated and was questioned by a couple of people about whether or not I should even share that story of Johnny Lingo with you lest you be super offended by the fact that I'm reading you a story about a man who paid for his wife. I am not condoning that behavior. But I don't want you to get so hung up on the idea of a dowry that you miss the point that I was trying to demonstrate. I hope that you can see the beauty in this story. The issue to be emphasized is not that Johnny paid cows for a wife, but that he saw her as a person of immense value. We admire Johnny for his act of love and kindness to Sarita, and we marvel at this incredible effect that it had on her. I mean, think about the beauty and the confidence that was brought forth from her. And my prayer for us today, for you and for me too, is that we would admire God for his love and his kindness towards us. My hope is that we will worship him more fully, realizing the kind of loving and generous God that he is. My hope for us is that we would stop comparing ourselves to others, stop thinking of ourselves as unworthy, but rather live as people who have been bought at the highest price, as people who are highly loved and valued by God. I want you to live like an eight-cow wife. There's one more thing I want to mention. If you go back and look at the text, Peter writes not to you as an individual, but he writes to a collective of people. And he addresses this people group and speaks to them of their corporate identity. He's speaking to a community that he calls the Bride of Christ, which is his church. 
We are part of this church. We are Christ's bride. And yes, there are things for each one of us to take away personally from what Peter says. But I'd also like you to consider how might we respond as a church, as a group, as a corporate body to what we've heard today. This week, I invite you to read through the entirety of 1 Peter and pay very special attention to the things that Peter asks people of God to do and consider what would be the impact that we could make if we didn't simply attempt to do these things on our own, but we did so corporately as a chosen people, as a group of royal priests, as a holy nation to take our stand and make an impact in this community? What would it look like if we all stood up and started living life differently with a God-ordained mission to demonstrate an entirely different way of thinking and living than what our world is used to seeing? Think about all the Saritas there are in the world, people who don't believe that they're loved, people who suffer under village gossip, and the weight of feeling compared to everyone else. Think about all the Saritas in this very room. We are called to minister to one another, to speak truth to each other, to give people a sense of value, to treat one another with love and respect. We are the people of God. And we have the great privilege of being able to call forth beauty and to lead people out of darkness and into God's glorious light. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that you did not leave us in our sin and disdain us for our shortcomings. But even in the midst of all of our mess-ups, that you scoop down and embrace us and say, you love us, that we are worth something to you, so much so that you would lay down your life for us. Help us not to wallow in our failings, God. Help us not to live always trying to earn your favor and, and, and be under the yoke of, of feeling like we have to impress and we have to measure up. Rather, Lord, help us to live as ones who have been redeemed, who have been freed from that. Help us to live as people of hope and to call others into that glorious light with us. We praise you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.